Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboyden Gray Center for the study of the administrative state. I'm Adam White. Justice Louis Brandeis famously referred to the states as laboratories of democracy. It's true in his time and true in ours. The laboratories in many ways, laboratories of democracy, laboratories of liberty, and laboratories of administration. That's the subject of our conversation today. Reforms in the states for administrative law, what it means for the states, and what it might mean for the Constitution in general. About a year ago, the Gray Center convened a a virtual roundtable to discuss some new working papers on administrative law reforms in the states. We had papers by Joe Postel on the non-delegation doctrine, by Miriam Seifter on counter-majoritarian legislatures, and papers by our two guests today, who I'll introduce in a moment. All these papers are available on the Grace Center's Working Papers page and on our website. I hope you'll look them up. But I've been looking forward to this conversation with our two featured guests today. I'll give a little longer introductions when it's each person's turn to discuss their paper. But just so you know up front, we're joined today by Daniel Ortner, an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and Dan Walters, professor of law at Penn State Law. So thank you both for joining us. And maybe we'll start with Daniel Ortner's papers. He wrote two papers on deference. They're both, again, available on the Working Papers page of the Gray Center's website. The first paper, uh, Working Paper uh, 2123, for those keeping track at home, is called The End of Deference, How States and Territories and Tribes are leading a sometimes quiet revolution against administrative deference doctrines. And the second paper, building on that, paper 2129, is titled Ending Deference, Why Some State Supreme Courts Have Chosen to Reject Deference and Others Have Not. Daniel is, as I mentioned, an attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. He came to PLF after two clerkships, one on the Utah Supreme Court and one on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. Uh, in addition to his writings on these and other topics, uh, and he, he has published extensively on the First Amendment. Um, yeah, he is an active litigator at PLF with a very busy docket. So, Daniel, thanks for making time to join us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Why don't we just start with a basic overview, Daniel? Uh, your paper, as with Dan Walter's paper, is a broad survey of what's happening in the states. And you did a really extensive work tracking state Supreme Courts and state legislatures on deference. So before we get into your findings, why don't we just start with a description of what it is that you surveyed? Yeah. So deference is uh, what happens when courts will defer to an interpretation by an agency. And that could be an interpretation of a law. If a legislator enacts a law and the agency says a term in the statute means X and the court will say, yes, we're going to assume it means X because you've said it means X. Or they could be interpreting a regulation of their own regulation. Um, And those are two different, different but related types of deference. Um, my the fifth the article, the first one is a, a 50 state survey, as you mentioned, of, of states. Um, and I, I started working on this because there was a real lack of updated surveys on the topic. Um, the, the latest article when I when I started to work on this was uh, more than 10 years old and a lot has happened uh, in the past uh, decade, um, you know, since 2008, really, in this field of state deference. Um, I, I'm aware, I became aware of this because I, I clerked for um, Justice uh, Tom Lee on the Utah Supreme Court uh, after law school, and he was one of the justices who had really pushed the state of Utah to abolish deference um, in a series of decisions, la- the last of which I got to work on a little bit while I was clerking for him uh, on our de- our like deference, which is deference to an agency's uh, interpretation of its own regulations. So the state of Utah abolished deference, and I so I was aware of that, and I, had, I was aware of some other states that had done so. I'd heard of the Michigan Supreme Court doing so as well, uh, but I didn't know the full extent of it. 
until I st- and I started looking into it, and I was really sh- really surprised uh, how many states have moved away from deference. So since 2008, there have been uh, at least eight states, Supreme Courts, that have uh, rejected deference in, at the state Supreme Court level. And there have also been uh, two ad- additional states that have abolished deference through a legislative or constitutional amendment. Uh, actually, and, and one state that has done both, uh, the uh, state of Wisconsin, the court acted and then the legislator acted afterwards. But so all of these states have moved away from deference in very dramatic ways with the vocal decisions rejecting deference, explaining why courts should not be deferring to agencies, uh, mostly invoking the rationale of judicial supremacy that the court's job is to decide what the law means. Um, and there also, in addition to these states, there have been a whole lot of states that have watered down deference in some way or another. Uh, many states have uh, limited deference to only certain circumstances, either when there's a special expertise by an agency, uh, when there's a long-standing interpretation, some states have said, or when um, there are some other real ind- indicia of, uh, of, of reasons to, to trust the agency um, in particular. So there, there's all of these limitations on deference I also see states that are uh, increasingly refusing to defer unless they go through a very thorough statutory interpretation and then say at the end, they'll basically say it almost never will be uh, be ambiguous enough to apply deference. Um, and uh, finally, there are voices of dissent in many state courts, uh, large states like Pennsylvania and Ohio, very vocal, prominent members of those state Supreme Courts that have been writing dissents or concurrences uh, over the last several years, arguing that they should move away from deference. So I see a very strong trend away from deference um, just in the past couple of years since I published the first version of this article last, last um, in two years ago, there's been, uh, or, sorry, uh, or I guess uh, you know, there's been at least two states that, that have moved away from deference since then, um, in, in, you know, since the first version, or even I think actually three states since the first version. So quite a lot of movement in the past couple of years on this topic. Um, the second article. Let me, let, me, might- let me jump in, Daniel, if I may, because early in your paper, you you list basically the six categories as you see it of how the states are breaking down. And if you don't mind, maybe I'll just quote that those couple of lines from your paper just for the sake of the audience. Um, you say you categorize states into six categories. One is, as you mentioned, states that have expressly rejected deference. Two, states that expressly employed only Skidmore deference. Three, states that employ some types of deference, but not other types of deference. Four, states that have grown more skeptical of deference in recent years. Uh, Five, states whose decisions are woefully uh, inconsistent, so much so that it's hard to categorize them at all. Uh, And then six, the states that fully extend Chevron and and our deference. Now, you do say that there's a a, a trend over time. And you also point out in your paper, I found this interesting, um, that the deference doctrines themselves that are either being reconsidered or reformed in some way, I mean, they they, they sort of accrue deference um, a little bit at a time or in different ways so that the doctrines themselves are not necessarily the pictures of clarity. And so tracking sort of reform efforts is sometimes a challenge, too. No, I, I don't yeah, want to, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just thought I'd put that out that's there. That's great. I mean, there are some states that have been, you know, the inconsistencies are such that they go back and forth. You read an opinion, one decision and you think, wow, they're not deferring anymore. They've, they've said, you know, we do not defer to agency interpretations. Uh, in the same year or a year later, the court will come out with the decision saying, actually, we do defer. And they're, they're, there's not, not a lot of clarity. And so there really are, when I say inconsistent, I, I really mean it there. I, I can't figure out what some of these states, like, like Nevada is one of them where they've gone back and forth. 
uh, on, on deference to the same agency, actually. Uh, we filed an amicus brief uh, last year at the Nevada Supreme Court in a case involving the state um, law, uh, engineer. Um, and you can find cases from the same year or year, you know, close time period going in granting deference and not granting deference to the same administrative official over the same interpretations. And so it, it's really, really confusing. <laughs> so I hope that they and other states clarify. Uh, I think that they, they're going to need to eventually and um, get, bring clarity to where the doctrine lies in those states. Now, in the two papers, I mean, you first sort of track the trends, and then in the second paper, you go a little bit into a little bit more granular detail about the explanations that some of the courts are giving for the, the kinds of changes they're making. Um, I'm curious to maybe hear more about that, but also in general, as you read these decisions, and I'll have sort of a similar question for Dan when we talk about Dan Walters when we talk about his paper, but do you get the sense that what's happening in the states is a response to the debates that are happening in in, in the federal courts and federal Supreme Court, or is this reform that's coming from kind of the, the, the ground up, so to speak? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's happening in response to what's uh, happening in other courts. Uh, I think the judges, uh, really, may, maybe even more so the other state Supreme Courts uh, than the um, the federal bench. I think federal bench matters. I mean, the, 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 the Kaiser decision or the recent one, uh, narrowing our deference, courts have quoted that. And, and you know, that, that's been a, a decision they've looked at. But overall, I think it's actually responding to other state Supreme Courts. Um, I, it's really what's happening is there, there are justices on the bench that are think this is an important issue, um, but other members of their courts probably have not thought about it very much, and they're able to persuade the other members of their court that this is a problem and something that limits their judicial power. And so I think it really starts with individuals who are vocal on the topic or a couple of individuals uh, who raise the issue to the awareness of their, their 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 respective courts, and then they have the right decision. The right case comes along where they can reconsider the doctrine, and they they, they do so. I think it's it's very much driven by by the justices um, of the states rather than uh, any from any anywhere else really. And speaking of the judges, so much of the federal debates about deference they're rooted in the court's conception of their own powers and responsibilities and expertise relative to those of other parts of government, um, the courts versus the, uh, the agencies who are either more democratically accountable through the president or more expert or, or both. And I'm wondering how that plays out. How, how do you see that play out in the states where, first of all, the agencies might be different than federal agencies in many ways, but the courts are too. You're often talking about judges who are, are directly elected. How do you see those differences playing out in the states and what might that tell us for the sake of, of federal discussions, so I, I think that the you know, the really the conclusion of the the second paper, the kind of ending deference uh, question mark paper, uh, was that the debate in the states really very closely parallels the federal debate. There really isn't a lot of debate or discussion about all those factors that you just talked about. And I think there are a lot of factors. I list some of them in the paper. Um, Aaron Sager has written other, another article uh, also raising some of these issues. And so he's thinking about this. There's some other scholars that are thinking about these, these differences. Um, and the, the courts just don't talk about them. They don't really talk about um, the differences between states and federal the federal government in terms of um, different structures or elect, elected officials, or there, there are a whole host of factors they could be thinking about. Um, there is a, there's a limited amount of consideration of, I mean, state constitutions come up, but it's usually just the kind of consideration of the separation of powers provisions, very similar to what a federal judge might say about the separation um, between Article One, Article Three, and the, the, the legislator and the courts. Um, they, they would say very similar things, but I don't see a lot of 
more detailed analysis about the different structures of, of government at, at all. And that's really what I, the conclusion I reached with this second paper is that's a little bit of a shame. Courts should be thinking about these arguments. There are unique arguments. They cut both ways, I think. Um, and courts need to be uh, taking those arguments more seriously, I think, when they're uh, continuing to debate this topic. And then just one last question before we turn to Dan Walters. I'm interested in hearing more about how the courts have grappled with, as you say, l- deference to longstanding interpretations. Um, that's you, It's not hard to see the federal debates focusing more and more on that. We've seen a little bit of that with, out, with the reforms of our deference in Kaiser versus Wilkie. Judges saying, well, maybe longer standing interpretations ought to be entitled to more deference, just as the Supreme Court, I think, used to in, in cases like Skidmore and so on. Um, the Madisonian in me, who likes uh, the, the idea of, of liquidating meaning over time. There was a great paper by Will Bode a few years ago on this. Um, I'm sort of intrigued to see how that theme in constitutional law might play out at the federal level. How do you see it playing out in the states? How do they grapple with this notion of, of a sliding scale of deference, giving more deference to longstanding interpretations and, and less deference to, to newer ones? There are, there are quite a few states that, that have that uh, framing. I think it's actually one of, the more co- one of the more common ones I list as far as the kind of narrowing constructions of, of states that the states have. Um, it's, it's a very common one. There are a couple other similar divisions. One would be an expertise. Like, is it highly technical? That's one that I think may, makes some sense to me that you know, if, if a term is highly, highly technical, that the agency is really the only one who understands it and can give authoritative meaning to it, that might be a reason why deference is more appropriate. Um, the, what you mentioned, the, the established the, the longstanding interpretation. Uh, there's uh, at least one state where it's uh, you have to have a longstanding interpretation that the judiciary is actually already spoken on to some degree. And so that almost seems like deference doesn't really exist there. If the judiciary has already spoken on it, it, it seems like, a, like it, it's strange to call it deference even. The other just one distinction I'll mention that, that is, is worth thinking more about is a couple of states have a d- division between um, interpretations of statutory terms and delegated um, uh, authority that an agency is exercising. So if an agency is interpreting the meaning of a word in a statute, that does not get deference because the courts say um, agencies are just as, you know, courts are just as able to interpret the meaning of a word as an agency. But if what the agency is really doing is exercising delegated authority to enact a, a policy, um, then they say that gets deference even in the, 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 the interpretation of terms, if it's kind of open-ended terms, then it's more of a non-delegation issue, I, th- I think, than a deference issue, because you're not deferring, it's not about an interpretation of a, of a statute, it's did the agency really have the authority to do this expansion of, of, the, of the law? And so that, that's one distinction that might make sense for, for federal courts to think more about. What is the agency doing? Is it interpreting or is it uh, being exercising delegated power? Um, and they might think about treating those differently. Well, that sounds very reminiscent of Chevron itself, where the, the court, in the same opinion, you know, while creating this this, this deference doctrine or, or or reforming this deference doctrine, says you know multiple times, we're we're still going to interpret the law when it's just a clear question of law. We'll interpret it. Right. We'll give deference on on these these more policy. I think the federal courts like, conflate conflate the two a lot. Uh, they're, they're basically really talking about interpretive questions and uh, places where I mean the, the only interpretation is reasonable. You know, the, the, the agency was told do something that's reasonable or something for health and safety. And they're not interpreting language. They're creating rules. And it doesn't make sense to talk about deference in the same way in both of those categories. 
Well, you mentioned delegation a moment ago, and and we'll turn to Dan Walter's paper in a second. But Dan, before we do, uh, you, having just done a fifty state survey yourself, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on on what we've discussed so far before we move on to your paper. Any any initial reactions to to what Daniel Ortner is describing in his his paper on deference? Yeah, yeah, I do have some some reactions, uh, and it was great to to hear Daniel talk about the paper and reengage with it. It's a a really important um, piece of work to document all this stuff that's happening uh, in the state courts, both in the deference domain and then also in the non-delegation domain, as my paper addresses. But um, I do have a couple of quick reactions. I mean, one thing that this all sort of raises for me is the question of, you know, why do we care about classifying uh, what the states are doing? Um, uh, It's largely because we care about outcomes, right? Um, uh, and, And not only outcomes in terms of you know, whether uh, an agency's rule is going to survive uh, a review in the courts, but also, you know, in terms of kind of, uh, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, uh, uh, kind of macroeconomic or uh, 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 general uh, indicators of, you know, uh, good policy at the state level. So um, I wonder, Daniel, if you've looked into uh, using your data uh, in any way to sort of look at whether these changes in doctrine have actually mattered uh, for you know how subsequent court decisions actually apply the doctrine, also how it might matter for you know uh, economic outcomes in a state, uh, uh, perhaps um, uh, other in, uh, indicators of again, like I said, good state policy. I think that's a really important question to ask, and your data sets up so nicely for for testing all of that. So I wonder if you've done anything on that. I also yeah. um, I, I want to say something quickly because uh, you have this great map uh, in um, the paper that everybody should go uh, consult, uh, where every state seems to be doing doing something just a little bit different uh, on deference. Um, but one thing that's really clear about it that's kind of striking, if you're used to looking at maps that break down very clearly on kind of red blue lines, is that yeah. there really is no correlation, it doesn't seem like, uh, uh, between, you know, kind of what red states are doing uh, 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 and on deference and what blue states are doing on deference in kind of normal uh, predictive patterns. Uh, uh, And I see a similar thing with non-delegation. So I'd be curious about your thoughts on that, why this doesn't seem to map onto, you know, our kind of uh, perennial political divisions. Sure. So first with with data, I think, I mean, what you said is, I think would be very extremely valuable. It's very difficult to to do, especially because the, some of these decisions, state courts have only abolished deference a couple of years ago. And so there's not a big data set of cases that are applying the standard. Um, One of my my colleagues uh, at at Pacific Legal Foundation, Alison Soman, and a couple other uh, scholars uh, wrote a, a working paper uh, recent, recently for a, a, a roundtable that PLF hosted um, on the uh, with the Scalia Law Center, the Mason Scalia Law Center on the topic of deference, where they looked at two states, uh, compared them, and th- for those two states, didn't find differences uh, in outcome. Uh, but I think that that's a, that's just a limited kind of a first crack at that. I think that that's very valuable. Um, the only uh, I, I know some some individual cases that seem to have come out differently. I, I list, mentioned one in Florida that seems to have come out differently, very much as a result of the change in deference. Um, because Florida was a state constitutional amendment, and so it went from being one of the, the least deferential states, or so the most deferential states, to the least deferential states in the country as a result of this change. Um, and so there, there's at least some cases that suggest that it's come, things are coming out differently, but there's not a lot of data, and I think that there, there's need for more more study. On the second, your second point, I think you're right that uh, it's not a, a necessarily a red, a red blue 
state divide. Um, I do, uh, Will Yateman and, uh, from Heritage Foundation and I did a, a, a working paper for that uh, symposium I mentioned, the roundtable I mentioned, on uh, kind of hypothesizing what factors might play a role. We just listed a couple. We listed, I think, I think one, one factor that it, it's not about red versus blue states, but we think it's possible that states that are, um, that are swing states or, or politically divided states, uh, that there might be uh, more of a need for reform of deference because it's more likely to be a, di- a difference between the interpretations being pushed by the legislator and the ju- judiciary. Uh, we think that um, the, the legislator, the degree to which the legislator reviews administrative um, rules, how much oversight they have might play a role too because there's a lot of oversight. Like a state like Idaho or West Virginia, the, the legislator essentially reviews every single thing that the, that the agencies put out and has to ratify them in some way. And if you do that, then you're not even really, you know, it's not really talking about deference anymore to the, the agency because the, the legislator has a, a really vital active role. And so that might be a, a factor as well. Like how important is deference going to be if the legislator is already doing the work of checking them, the agencies, then maybe deference just doesn't come up that often or isn't really a relevant factor. Those are some factors we looked at in this paper. And there are a lot of other factors uh, that we didn't look at because it's harder to measure the, the impact of elected judges, for instance, or, or the, the structure of the, the, the legislative branch, how, how often people are elected or uh, term limits. There are a lot of factors you could look at that we think might be relevant that are very hard to measure. But those are some that we looked at and, and hypothesized that they might play a role. In. Well, thanks for all that. Let's turn to Dan Walter's paper. You've heard from Dan a little bit so far, but let me introduce him. He's an assistant professor of law at Penn State Law, as well as an affiliate faculty member at Penn State's Department of Political Science. And he's a researcher at the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. In addition to all that, he also serves as editor-in-chief of the, uh, the Administrative and Regulatory Law News, which is the, uh, the, the magazine of the American Bar Association's Administrative Law section. In his research, uh, he focuses on empirical studies and questions, uh, testing the claims that undergird proposed reforms to the regulatory state and administrative law, and looking at uh, political and legal approaches for the transition to a cleaner economy. This paper we have now before us is a, is a very, very empirical paper. It's titled Decoding Non-Delegation After Gundy, What the Experience in State Courts Tells Us About What to Expect When We're Expecting. And Dan, let me jump in with a quote from your paper. You say in, very early on in describing your work, Here's what you say, quote, this article swims against the current in arguing that the changes envisioned by the majority of the court in and of themselves will not fundamentally change anything about how courts approach the problem of delegation. It's very interesting. Why don't you tell us about your study and and tell us about this conclusion? Great. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Happy to talk about it. And I should say thank you again uh, to the Gray Center for uh, supporting the project uh, uh, and for a great symposium, which really, really improved the piece. so on that conclusion, you know, I, I, as I am wont to do, I, I like to approach things from a, a, a data approach, an empirical approach. Uh, and, and I have to admit, I mean, I, I'm a bit skeptical in general that uh, a lot of the things that we talk about in administrative law will lead to the fundamental reforms uh, that people expect they will. Um, I don't know, we could talk in, in more depth about why I have those kind of uh, preconceived notions or priors, but um, I was not terribly surprised to find that when we looked at the data, I say we, I mean me, um, <laughs> um, uh, when I looked at the data, uh, uh, there really wasn't any evidence that uh, uh, 
So uh, what I essentially do in the paper is uh, uh, classify different states, much like Daniel uh, 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 did with uh, deference doctrines on non-delegation. So I found that uh, states use lots of different approaches uh, to the non-delegation doctrine, unlike the federal courts, where it's just the intelligible principle uh, standard. Um, uh, So actually, uh, some states uh, do uh, something that looks very similar to what Justice Gorsuch proposed uh, in the Gundy dissent, um, uh, which is to largely focus on things like whether uh, the legislature has uh, uh, written a statute that leaves only details to be filled in by an agency uh, or has left only a fact-finding determination to be made by an agency. Um, So uh, the fact that states differ on what doctrine they actually employ allows us to kind of observe what actually happens. Um, uh, And it turns out that when we look at that, um, there really isn't any major difference between states that purport to apply something that looks a lot like the intelligible principle standard uh, versus other states that don't uh, or that apply something that looks a lot more like the the Gundy dissent. Um, So um, uh, it gets a little bit complicated in the last part of the paper where I sort of flesh this out and think about what this means for the project of trying to revive uh, the non-delegation doctrine. But here's the bottom line. Um, the Supreme Court is not going to be able to usher in a revolution on its own. It can only hear, uh, you know, roughly 50 to 80 cases a year uh, 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 the way that it currently does. Obviously, the shadow docket becomes a bigger issue that could change, but but its uh, resources are limited. It's going to rely on the lower courts to do this work. Uh, and if these doctrines, uh, whatever form they take, are not capable of constraining future courts or lower courts, um, then it's not likely that uh, uh, any kind of revolution is going to be sustained. What we'll see is kind of one-off invalidations of statutes. Um, this certainly happens at the state level. We should expect it to happen at the federal level uh, should the Supreme Court decide to uh, make uh, Justice uh, Gorsuch's approach law. Uh, but I just don't think that uh, the data here suggests that it's going to be uh, possible to maintain that higher level of uh, uh, stringency of review over a long period of time unless we have something that looks much more rule-like. Let's talk a little bit about the data. What did you compile here? Where did you look? Um, I note that you note that you you see 22 states as following an approach on non-delegation that's similar to what Justice Gorsuch described in his Gundy dissent as as a fill the gaps approach. Um, where where the the agent where we can it's okay for a legislature to delegate power to fill in gaps um, within a statutory structure, but not to sort of write and make policy and law on a, on a blank slate. I, I'm, I'm meandering a bit here. Why don't you, why don't you describe the, the data and, and sort of how you see the, the various states breaking down in terms of what they at least say they're trying to do, and then I guess what they're actually doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't, uh, uh, you know, writing on a completely blank slate uh, 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 when it comes to trying to classify the state's uh, uh, in terms of their non-delegation doctrine. So there were previous studies by Gary Greco and then Jim Rossi as well um, that had tried to classify states based on, you know, kind of a, a more crude uh, a kind of uh, a classification scheme, whether it was, you know, a loose or strict non-delegation doctrine uh, 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 or in Rossi's case, whether it was moderate, strong or weak. Um, but what I found when I looked at the states, um, uh, and, and maybe it was just hindsight is 2020, right? Uh, 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 you begin to think of things in terms of, you know, the fill in the details test or the executive fact-finding test once Justice Gorsuch highlights that in the Gundy decision. But what I found was that, you know, they actually use that language quite consistently, at least that subset of states. Um, uh, and it's not always the same state that uses fill in the details or executive fact-finding. You know, there's differences across states, uh, 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 even within that 22 uh, group that, uh, that you mentioned. Um, uh, 
But uh, but it's pretty clear that a lot of these states really do consistently use this language when describing uh, their tests, um, uh, whereas other states, um, you know, uh, use language that is as uh, kind of liberal or um, uh, uh, loose uh, as the intelligible principle standard. Uh, 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 so uh, we even have some states that do something slightly different as well, uh, like California with the procedural safeguard standard. So there really is quite a diversity of approaches, but Broadly speaking, I think we can kind of uh, think of it as the Gorsuch approach uh, uh, and the intelligible principle uh, uh, approach. Uh, and there's kind of a nice balance of the states, actually, in terms of which ones uh, 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 adhere to, to which test. Now, they, they describe what they're doing sort of differently from different bunches of states. But you said it, you don't see it having a huge impact on actual outcomes. So what's actually happening here? They're, they're, they're describing things differently, maybe significantly differently but it's not really having an effect in the end? Yeah, so what I do in the paper is, you know, run some regression analyses uh, with different dependent variables, um, uh, largely looking at, you know, individual decisions. Is it uh, uh, an invalidation of a statute or is it a validation of a statute? But also looking at case counts and things like that. There's a bunch of robustness checks in the paper. But um, but essentially, if you use these regressions uh, uh, where you have the dependent variable be something like, you know, the invalidation or or validation of a statute, um, you can just look at uh, as a categorical variable which doctrine they happen to apply and see whether that leads uh, to a statistically significant result, which is effectively uh, what I try to do. And I just don't find that there are any results that are statistically distinguishable from a null effect. Um, uh, So there are other factors that I find that do uh, impact uh, the propensity of courts to invalidate uh, or validate statutes, but they're just simply not the doctrinal variables. They're not the things that the uh, courts themselves claim uh, uh, do the work. Well, maybe we'll get back to what this all means for federal debates in, in a little bit, but just sticking on the, the state courts for now, what is it, what's the, the upshot of this just for the debates happening in the state courts um, where there are, they're having sort of a vibrant debate about these issues? Um, do you think or would you expect that, that that trend will continue where the states might diverge on what they say they're doing, but things will, the actual outcomes will remain the same or or reading the cases do you think that maybe that that trend would change and that actually at some point the changing descriptions might have, a, you know, different effects on the actual outcomes? And I was going a bit beyond the, the empirical study you did here, but I'm just curious for your sense of the situation. Yeah, I, I think it's always difficult to predict the future. Um, uh, but to the extent that the Supreme Court wades into this territory and starts, you know, uh, changing the doctrine uh, around the non-delegation doctrine, I think there's a possibility that will percolate, um, uh, you know, much as uh, uh, what uh, uh, seems to have happened with deference doctrines um, uh, uh, with Daniel's paper. So, you know, I I don't think that you can think of it in in a vacuum, right? Uh, There's obviously this sort of feedback effect that comes from uh, the conversation that state courts are having amongst themselves and then also with the federal court system. Um, But at the end of the day, uh, uh, and what I argue in the final concluding part of the paper, um, again, this is sort of my my own my own take on things. And this is where we start to depart from the data uh, and what's very objective. Right. But it's going to be very difficult to maintain um, uh, uh, any kind of consistency and decision making, um, even if I think there's, you know, sort of, uh, you know, one big uh, shock to the system that might be a big invalidation of a federal statute, for instance, that causes a lot of states to feel more emboldened to really enforce the non-delegation doctrine could certainly happen. But there's just so many variables out there uh, 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 that could plausibly affect court decision making, uh, uh, whether to invalidate a statute or validate a statute. 
um, that it's going to be very difficult for court systems, especially plural court systems, right? Uh, many different court systems with different pressures uh, at the state level to maintain any kind of coherent approach. So while there might be some kind of convergence on the way we talk about it and, and maybe even uh, kind of an invigoration of the language that we use to talk about the problem, I, I think the data give us some reason to be a little, at least a little bit skeptical uh, uh, that this will translate to major differences in terms of results. Now, for the most part, your paper is looking at the the big picture. I mean, you're 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 studying the the trends of cases, but you're looking at a lot of cases. There's a lot of numbers and graphs in this in this uh, paper. I was promised there'd be no math on the exam, but this was this was an, an exception. But to the extent that you've looked in at specific cases, I'm just um, I'm just curious. Similar to the question I asked Daniel Ortner, sometimes there is a difference between the federal courts and the state courts over the types of judges that we're talking about, elected versus unelected, differences in the legislatures, differences in the the agencies that are being delegated powers by the legislatures. Um, And I'm sure the statutes are written uh, differently from, from the federal government to the state governments. And I'm just curious what sense you have of of the impact that those kind of differences, if they're there, might have on the way that state courts look at non-delegation questions versus federal courts. Have you got any kind of sense of that or or is it just sort of all over the place? Well, there are definitely um, differences uh, between uh, uh, the federal approach to the non-delegation doctrine and the state approach to the non-delegation doctrine, regardless of what doctrinal standard they purport to be applying. Um, you know, for one, uh, we see uh, a, a much uh, a greater invalidation rate at the state level than we do at the federal level, just across the board. Uh, and this is something that other scholars have uh, identified uh, in surveys of cases at the state uh, court level. Uh, you know, there's something like an 81% or 82% validation rate uh, at the state level, which uh, and that's with a data set of, you know, uh, a, a couple thousand cases. Um, uh, so there's more litigation. There's also more invalidations um, at the state level. And I have some hypotheses about why that's different at the state level uh, than it is at the federal level, where we see almost uniform uh, validation of federal statutes under the non-delegation doctrine. So th- there are undoubtedly differences. Um, and I'm, I'm not purporting to say that this is a perfect experiment, right? Um, uh, it never is. Um, uh, I don't think uh, Justice Brandeis, uh, uh, when he talked about the laboratories of states, uh, ever had in mind a sort of perfect laboratory experiment, right? Um, there are going to be differences, right? But it's the best data we have, unfortunately, um, uh, to answer these important questions, right? Um, uh, and I don't think we should shy away from using imperfect uh, experiments uh, uh, to help inform how we think about reforms at a different system or a different level of the system. Uh, uh, we ought to use the best data that we possibly have. Um, at the federal level, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, uh, 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 if you are a supporter of the regular t- regulatory state, uh, there just is no variation here, right? So we can't possibly do this kind of study. So uh, I think it's important to at least uh, look at the state level where we have some data to play with. Well, as with Daniel Ortner's paper, there's so much detail uh, in your paper. We couldn't possibly do it justice in a brief conversation. So people, please do uh, look up both uh, Dan Walter's paper and also Daniel Ortner's papers, all of which are linked in the uh, in the description uh, of this episode. But but Daniel Ortner, maybe turning back to you, uh, do you have any thoughts on on what we've discussed here for Dan's paper? Um, given that, again, you, you wrote a, a pretty exhaustive study yourself of, of how deference is playing out in the states. As you listen to this conversation sure. about non-delegation in the states, what are your reactions? Sure. I mean, what's, what's been interesting to me in the topic of non-delegation in the states has been this past 
a year and a half or, or, or two, almost two years of COVID-19. And it's been almost a stress test in my mind for non-delegation in some states. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious about your, your thoughts on the, the, the cases in the COVID-19 context. It seems like thinking of the states that, that found uh, violations, you look at, I think Wisconsin's the biggest one. I think Michigan had some uh, as well, but Wisconsin being the prominent one. And it looks like on your, your chart here, it looks like Wisconsin doesn't have a lot of these, uh, a lot of the limits that you're talking about some states having some, it seems like that validates your theory, perhaps that, you know, the states that have this uh, maybe nice language, ultimately find don't, don't enforce it with teeth and other states do for whatever reason. Um, I'm also curious about your thoughts about, uh, you know, if you think about the COVID-19, like emergency powers, uh, a state like California gives all police power of the state to the governor during a pandemic. Uh, it's uh, incredibly broad delegations. You know, I think far broader than anything, the delegations that happen in most cases. And I'm just wondering your, your thoughts on how, how that's impacting the debate in the states. Um, also, there's been emergency powers uh, legislation in quite a few states in response to COVID-19. And so I wonder how that factors in. If if legislators are uh, taking the reins more actively, does that reduce the need for courts to enforce non-delegation? Or uh, just your, your thoughts on what, what's happening at the state legislative level? Because there's been a, a pretty uh, significant number of states that have done some kind of emergency power reform in the past uh, year, uh, year and a half. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to respond to there. Um, I agree that um, you know the the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, uh, and you know some of the emergency measures that have been taken in response to that have been a kind of stress test uh, for the non delegation doctrine. Um, I you know I, it does seem though like you know notwithstanding some you know uh, uh, examples like Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, which may have, you know, partially uh, resurrected the non-delegation doctrine without really saying it explicitly. Um, the, the kind of larger trend has been that, you know, uh, uh, there hasn't been a major uh, reform of the non-delegation doctrine. We don't see uh, the same kind of doctrinal reshuffling, at least not yet. It could happen, certainly, uh, that we see with deference, for instance, in your paper, right? So it's a kind of interesting question to me, like, you know, uh, uh, why would that not be happening, given that there's been a lot of criticism uh, of uh, the use of emergency powers by governors and the like, right? But um, uh, uh, maybe some of that has to do with some of the pressure being taken off uh, by reforms to deference doctrine, right? I think that I could be mistaken about this, but the Wisconsin case was not even technically a non-delegation case. It was uh, a a statutory interpretation case um, uh, uh, that sort of avoided the non-delegation problem. But um, but but I think that that sort of suggests that there could be some ways that courts can avoid actually having to make some of these. Uh, 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 changes to the non-delegation doctrine that would lead to the same result, right? So it's kind of a similar point to the paper, a little bit beyond the scope of the paper. Uh, but we have to keep in mind that when it comes to all of these doctrines, you know, the deference doctrines and the non-delegation doctrine, courts can accomplish the same result without uh, 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 necessarily uh, applying a different standard, right? Um, uh, and so uh, this is kind of why uh, I asked a question I did to, to you in, in response to your paper, you know, in some sense, the courts are going to do what the courts are going to do, right? And uh, the only way we know what they're going to do is when they reveal their preferences through actually voting on cases, right? Um, and and so, you know, I think the jury's still out when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, if that really fundamentally changed anything and how, you know, courts will approach uh, issues of executive power, for instance. Um, uh, uh, you know, it could be that that will lead to a lasting, durable shift in you know, kind of invalidation rates, right? Whether it's under the non-delegation doctrine or some other doctrine. Uh, but you need to have some 
uh, a perspective to ever be able to evaluate, I think, what courts are going to do in future cases. Uh, just think taking the courts at their word for what the doctrine says it's going to do, I think, is uh, going to lead to uh, a mistake in terms of uh, uh, what the doctrine actually is in practice. Dan, so let's let's focus on this one more time. The question that Dan Walters has raised a few times, and of course, it's the centerpiece of his paper, that maybe for all the debates that are happening around a doctrine, in his case, non-delegation doctrine, it just doesn't affect substantive outcomes. Dan, as you were describing this, and as you were re-raised this question with Daniel Ortner, uh, I jotted down on my notepad Macbeth, because it reminds me of that, that line from Macbeth about a, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Maybe all these debates about non-delegation and about deference are full of sound and fury, but they signify nothing if they're not affecting outcomes. I mean, if you're right, and the way that the state courts are debating these issues and these doctrines isn't really changing outcomes, is that the end of the matter? Or is there still some value to be had in in, in the judges think debating about how they're just describing what the courts do on questions of delegation and deference? Well, I'll, I'll always align myself with Shakespeare. It's usually a, a, a good move. Um, uh, but to answer the question, I... Uh, certainly, I, I, I think that uh, there's limited value um, in looking to the ways that judges describe the tests that they're applying in this domain, you know, in terms of predicting what the outcomes are going to be. Um, but I do think there's still value. Um, one critical piece of value for judges laying out their theories and their doctrines and, and trying to justify their results um, uh, in their opinions is because that's going to shape you know, the legal dialogue. It's going to shape the dialogue with, with advocates, right? Um, uh, uh, and I think that's a valuable kind of deliberative exercise in its, in its own right, right? Um, I also think it's important for how courts communicate with the public. At the end of the day, judicial review, administrative action, anything that the government does uh, is only going to be accepted uh, if it's publicly justified. Um, uh, and I think it's a great thing uh, when um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, judges lay out their reasons uh, for preferring one doctrine or another, and then people can read those opinions and make up their mind about which one makes the most sense. They can uh, 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 then uh, take action if they disagree. Um, uh, that's democracy in action. So I think there's still value in all of it, but we need to be very skeptical that uh, we could ever predict anything simply based on how judges describe the tests that they're applying. I think that's that's pretty clear. And Daniel Ordner? I think it does does matter. Uh, even uh, so, what we we see with cases that come out is that we see an outcome, but we don't see usually the briefing, the arguments that are being made by the parties. Um, it, with with deference, I think it's pretty obvious that the the amount of statutory interpretation, the the, the depth of interpretation, the degree to which the parties are making arguments about the text um, has increased. Um, or it, it tends to increase when courts take uh, take uh, a little more skeptical glance on deference, even if they do ultimately defer. So a state like like Georgia, which uh, you know I, I, they mentioned is one of the ones that says uh, we're almost never going to defer because we're just never going to need to because we're going to be doing our really really serious job of interpreting the statutes. We're going to be as thorough as we possibly can, and we're, we're usually not going to need to deference because most statutes you can make some heads or tails of it. They're not ultimately completely ambiguous. And so I think that the extent the courts do that, the parties engage more with the text, they argue more about the meaning that uh, not just the agency saying, well, we win because we, we, we are the agency and we win, uh, but you have more engagement. And I think that's a good thing for, for the courts. I think that the court decisions become more uh, in, more in depth, uh, more, more meaningful rather than very quickly running to defer. 
uh, kind of as a, a passing thought, like, well, the agency said so, so we're going to do what they say. So I think it matters for that reason. And I, I imagine the same is, is true for non-delegation as well, really just getting the parties to actually argue the issues in depth, to engage them, to, to prove for the government to put evidence forward about its arguments, I think is, is very valuable. Uh, as, as a litigator, you know, when the government has to actually prove itself, it, it changes the dynamic in, in many respects when, then when they can just kind of uh, rely on platitudes about about De- deference or, or delegation. And so I think that it does matter quite a bit for, for the parties and for um, the, the state of the law. And last question, I promise. Uh, these papers are, are posted online and, and you'll, you'll publish them in, in journals. And I hope they're, they're read very widely. And imagine someday a, a federal judge or even a justice um, finds you, uh, Dan Walters or Daniel Ortner, and says, I read your paper. It's, it's fascinating. Or I'm going to read your paper and I'm sure it's fascinating. But what's most important piece of advice you'd give me as I'm thinking about non-delegation and deference as a matter of the federal constitution, federal statutes, my job as a federal judge, what's the most important thing I can learn as a judge, a federal judge, from your study of state law? If, if you find yourself in, in that kind of, of great position, uh, what advice will you give them? Um, maybe we'll start with Daniel Ortner this time. I'll say two things. One, states have gotten rid of deference and the world hasn't fallen apart. <laughs> These uh, agencies sometimes make arguments that the sky is going to fall down if you don't defer to them. And that, that hasn't happened uh, in the states that have gotten rid of deference. Um, and now we're talking about you know, more than 10 states that have in just in recent years done so. Um, and then I, I think uh, second is a lot of the decisions we have on deference, even in the federal level, a lot of it's reflexive. It's not really very thought out. And so I would say, Think deeply. I think this these these issue of state deference should encourage judges to think deeply about the issue of deference. Uh, dig deeper. Uh, try to ex- understand why or it is or isn't justified in greater detail than has has happened up to this point. So I think just encouraging engagement and greater uh, reflection on on why ju- why deference is or isn't appropriate. Right. And and Daniel Ortner uh, of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dan Walters, you'll get the last word if you find yourself uh, in conversation with a judge and she or he asks you what's the most important lesson they could learn from your paper. Uh, what advice would you give them? Well, I think it's the the theme of the conference that you put together, really, that we can learn a lot um, uh, by looking at uh, what states have done. Um, and we might find things uh, in what states have done that surprise us. Um, you know, one of the things that stands out for me uh, in, in this paper and then also in a companion project uh, that I'm uh, working on with Elliot Ash um, is, you know, there might be more to be said about some doctrines we've just completely overlooked in the non-delegation space, like the procedural safeguards approach. Um, it could be uh, the data seems to somewhat back this up. Uh, this isn't in this paper per se, but maybe uh, more in the other one. Uh, that it might be a way of actually changing legislative behavior more effectively than any of the approaches uh, that we've been talking about so far today, like the fill in the details approach, the intelligible principle standard. So, you know, there there are just lessons waiting to be learned uh, uh, at the state level if we only uh, have kind of a data-driven mindset. So uh, I, I think judges should be looking at what states are doing, and they might be very surprised by what they find. That's great, Dan. And thanks again for joining us today, uh, Dan Walters of Penn State. So in addition to the papers we've discussed today, two by Daniel Ortner and one by Dan Walters, there were two other papers, again, that we discussed at this this uh, virtual roundtable about a year ago. One, another paper as it happens by on non-delegation was by Joseph Postel of Hillsdale College. It's titled The Myth of State Non-Delegation Doctrines. 
And then a paper by Miriam Seifter of uh, University of Wisconsin. Uh, her paper was titled Countermajoritarian Legislatures. Those papers and the three that we discussed are all available on the Grace Center's uh, working papers website. So I hope you'll look them up. And I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of Gray Matters. Again, this is Adam White. Thank you for joining us and join us again next time. Mm-hmm.